0: What a blessed occasion and a marvelous joy it is that we can come together this morning reminiscent of those words in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse number 1. As we have assembled together this morning to bring homage and glory and adoration to the wonderful God of heaven, we come to a lesson entitled, Excitement in the Gospel. You might have noted from the reading taken from Acts the 13th chapter, a very notable occasion of excitement a very notable circumstance and situation of it. I would invite us to spend the next few moments and think a bit more interestingly about not only the features of that chapter, but also some of the other things in the gospel about excitement. I've chosen to begin the lesson with some of these comments. All of us know that life on occasion brings its moments of excitement. There are things that are a bit unusual and not just the ordinary day-by-day things, but rather every now and then, perhaps even frequently, there are things that come into your life and mine, and they are special moments. Maybe it's the birth of a child. Certainly there are very few occasions like that in life. Maybe it's that occasion of one's wedding day. Maybe it's some great momentous event A notable promotion at work. Something that brings an especially unusual moment of excitement. It brightens one's spirit, infuses one's life with energy and fervor. Those kind of moments all of us know from time to time. As we think about them and appreciate them, isn't it amazing that some individuals find them even far more often? Sports is something that brings a lot of excitement to some. They root for their team, they cheer for their team, they get all involved in it. Some of them paint their faces and camp out for days just to get a ticket. Sometimes that degree of excitement reminds us that that kind of thing really is something extraordinarily special for those individuals. I would submit to each of us, though, that the gospel also brings some excitement. And this morning, for the next few moments, let us look at Acts the 13th chapter and revisit what was the excitement on that occasion, what brought it, how did they react to it, and how might you and I share in the nature of that excitement. As we do that, let's begin the lesson by not only preparing the nature of that text, but providing a bit of background to it. It's always an exciting thing to come to a particular passage and appreciate the scene of events that goes with it. It's more than just a single verse but rather it's the story, it's the record of what unfolded and how it happened. When the book of Acts begins, we recall that it was truly a fantastic set of occurrences. The Son of God, Jesus, had been crucified some few days before. We've noticed that He was shortly about to ascend back to the Father. He was going to leave behind forever the fleshly existence in this life. Those apostles would be the ones left to carry on the work, to set forth the nature of the coming kingdom. And as all of that took place, it brings us to Acts 1 verse 8. On that occasion, it was Jesus right before He ascended. It was to those apostles He said, You will be witnesses of Me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. They were going to be the eyewitnesses of what He had done, what He had said, the matter of His mission and doctrine. And then in the very next verse, our Savior passed through the clouds into the ancient of days. He forevermore left the scenes in the character of His flesh on this earth. In the verses that follow, don't we come face to face with things like this? Jesus by that point had come. The marvelous wonder of the message in Matthew 1, verses 21 and 23 had become a reality. Call Him Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. The message that had been housed in the confines of the mind of God for centuries had now come to fruition. The child was about to be born. Jesus was going to be born, and He would in fact be the one that would save His people from their sins. Two verses later, call Him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't it beautiful to consider then that this one grew up. He preached, he taught, he encouraged, he exhorted, he rebuked, and then he died. And then ultimately he ascended back to the Father. In Acts the second chapter, we find the fruition of that kingdom. The church came into its establishment There, as the Holy Spirit baptized those apostles in verses 1 through 4 of that chapter, we notice that Peter in verse 11 stood up and began to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. He preached to all those that were there assembled. He talked about the grandeur of the Christ, the greatness of what He had accomplished, the nature of His death, the power of His resurrection, and the glorious wonder of His ascension to the Father. Peter laid it all out to them. As he closed the lesson, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. We notice in verse 37, When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We immediately notice there was a degree of excitement. They were overwhelmed with the character of their sin. They had put to death the Son of God. Peter by inspiration said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We notice in verse 41, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The church had its establishment. It was now reality. It was that very body through which one could be called out of the world of darkness into the nature of the light of God, Colossians 1.13 the blessedness, and the glory that goes along with it. Surely, it's fair to say, it brought not only some excitement, but it highlights this thought. Those Jews, with the greatness of the opportunity, that same thing was extended to the Gentiles eight chapters later. At the household of Cornelius, we will remember that he, as well as several others, were assembled, and to them, Peter preached the same message he had preached to the Jews eight chapters before, This time again they gladly received it, and they too responded in faith, and they too were baptized, Acts 10, verses 44 to 48. Can we not then fairly say that redemption's sweet song had now been sung? The Gentiles had received it, the Jews had received it, congregations were springing up wherever brethren went and preached the great news of Jesus. The Roman Empire was known for its cruelty. It was known for its hardness. It was known for many things besides tenderness and compassion. And yet, wherever the gospel went, when Paul preached, individuals were excited. They responded in faith, and a congregation of the Lord's church was established. I suppose then, in fairness, it would be time to come to the opening verses of Acts 13. After the events of the welcoming in of the Gentiles in chapter 10, turn with me to the opening verses of Acts chapter 13. On that occasion, we read about five men in verse 1, these who were excited to allow their talents to be used for the message of the gospel, and these were in the location of Antioch. This congregation would become the center point of the gospel from Acts chapter 13 on to Acts chapter 28 this congregation and its fervor for evangelism, its interest in preaching the truth, its concern for the souls of men, the church at Antioch would be the center place, the headquarters if you please, for the movement through the last 15 chapters of the book of Acts. As you give thought to this, you'll notice that while these five men were excited to minister on behalf of the gospel, we find something special that took place in verse 2. The Holy Spirit called two of them. Their names were Barnabas and Saul and said, I have a special work for them. The congregation, it seems, quickly laid their hands on them, commissioned them to the work to be done, and proceeded to encourage them in the great work of the gospel. What was this great work that the Holy Spirit had in mind? Beginning in verse number 3, it was this. It was Paul's first evangelistic tour. His first evangelistic work, if you please. His first missionary journey. He and Barnabas were now going to be partnered and off they would go to preach in various locations around the globe. First, they would leave Antioch and they came to the island first mentioned in this particular chapter. It's that island I've listed at the bottom, the island of Cyprus. As they came to Cyprus, they preached first on its eastern boundary and then on its western boundary. And along the way, they were instrumental in the conversion of the deputy council on the island and also a great many others who believed the gospel. Excitement came to that island. And when they gladly received it, what a special mission it was. However, Paul and Barnabas left the island and went to another city also called Antioch. It wasn't the same city from which they had left. This was a different place. And when they came... It shall be this city that shall be the center place of much of the rest of the lesson. Something amazing happened. Something truly momentous took place at that location. Beginning in verse number 14 in Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas came to this particular city, we find that there was an interesting opportunity afforded them. It was the Sabbath day. And it was Paul's usual custom to assemble on that day so that he had opportunity to preach to those that were Jews. The Jews offered him the opportunity that day to preach. And Paul was always happy to preach when the opportunity was afforded. He delivered a truly colossal sermon in which he rehearsed Old Testament history. He shared with them the nature of Abraham the nature of the Egyptian bondage. He recalled to their mind the greatness of men like David and Saul and Samuel. He encouraged them to appreciate God's working through the centuries. He then came and mentioned Jesus. He said, you know about John the Baptist. He was one who preached, but he was the forerunner. He was the one, the messenger, bringing the way and heralding the tidings of the coming of the Messiah. And then he came. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up and preached, and you know that he was put to death not too many years earlier. As Paul preached about Jesus, he had a captive audience, and they listened with intensity. And as they listened, we come near the close of the lesson. And I would invite you to notice verse number 42. It says, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue... The Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The Jews left the assembly time and they weren't all that enthused about what they had heard. Believe it or not, they were less than enthusiastic. They simply left. But the Gentiles were the ones overwhelmed with excitement. We'd like to hear, Paul, you preach this again next Sunday. In essence, if you and I were to place our thoughts in that, the Gentiles said, preach it again, brother. Preach it again the next Sunday. They wanted to hear more of it. Here were some individuals who were overwhelmed with fervor and ardent zeal and excitement about the nature of what they had heard preached, what the thoughts were that had been shared because they wanted to hear more about it. In fairness, it was the Jews who assembled in the synagogue and maybe the Gentiles, the best they could do was stand at a distance and hear perhaps what Paul said, but they wanted to hear it in its fullness. They wanted to hear all of it. They wanted to hear the fullness of the gospel cart unloaded on them. Isn't that an interesting thing to hear? That brings us to another part in the lesson text. Verse number 43 goes on to put it in these words. Now when the congregation was broken up, Many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. At first, in Antioch, when Paul and Barnabas came, there was merely an assemblage of Jews at the synagogue, and they had been privileged to hear the unsearchable riches of the truth of the Christ. But as we noted earlier, they didn't receive it nearly the way one might have thought they would. However, the Gentiles were overwhelmed with interest. Preach it again, they said, and the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together. Maybe you and I have witnessed occasions when in days gone by, a gospel meeting and perhaps a special speaker would come to town and a large group of people would gather. It happened in Antioch. Almost the whole city came together. They couldn't wait, apparently, to hear. And might we notice, it would seem that during the course of that week, the Gentiles had often spoke about the man coming and what was going to be said. They spread the word by mouth. They spoke of it. They encouraged others to come. Excitement was ablaze in the ancient city of Antioch. I wonder what happened when the the Sabbath finally came. We notice later in that same chapter, in verse number 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. You'll notice in some of that, some of the information on that slide, the city, in fact, was not disappointed by what Paul preached. They were glad. Can you almost feel the excitement in ancient Antioch? When these Gentiles who had been outcast and they hadn't been blessed to receive the gospel, finally to them Paul was now preaching. They knew that they had been welcomed into the gospel fold as well. And they knew that to them had been given opportunity to appreciate forgiveness of sin, the notion of salvation, association with God, the hope of eternal life, and all that goes with it. No wonder they were excited no wonder that to them now, things were not going to be the same anymore. It might be in regard to all of that. You and I too can contemplate the characteristic of excitement. is the thing that was exciting to them, shouldn't it also be exciting to us? I would invite you to notice the reading of verses 38 and 39. One of the elements in Paul's sermon to them Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. To a person who had never known forgiveness, to one who had never appreciated the fullness, think how special it would be to hear for the first time that there was a man that died for you and that His blood can cleanse your sins, and that you, by obedience to what He declared, can be made right with God, and that you can know fully the appreciation of that blessing. These Gentiles in Antioch were hearing that for the first time, and it was as if they had responded in tremendous excitement. Perhaps that leads us to these comments that challenge us today, these same comments that ask us about excitement. For perhaps there are times when you and I fail in that regard. Maybe there are times that you and I do not respond with the excitement that perhaps ought to be appropriate in light of the blessedness and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I noted earlier, we can be excited about ball games, and we can be excited about things perhaps on the job side occasionally, and we might be excited about certain events in the weather world, But do we get excited about the gospel? Does it mean that much to us that it leads us to also be excited about it? For the rest of this lesson this morning, why not give some thought to some of the passages in the New Testament that help us appreciate the degree of excitement that ought to be ours? As we begin that, maybe a word of warning is in order. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, We read about a congregation, a group of people gathering in the ancient city of Laodicea. And it was to them that Jesus had a very particular message. For He said, you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm was what He told them. And that was very displeasing to Jesus. And you'll notice they weren't hot. Jesus said He wished they had either been hot or cold. And obviously He would have preferred that they be hot. But the worst possible case of all to be in was to be lukewarm. We must be cautious and careful, must we, not to allow ourselves to view Christianity as lukewarm. Just come together a couple of times a week and warm a pew for a while. That's not what Christianity is all about, is it? Oh, it's true. Worship is a part of it. And we should look forward to the times to come and pour forth our grateful heart to the God of heaven. But it must run far deeper than that, mustn't it? So that it impacts your life and mine tomorrow and all throughout the days of the week. These these Gentiles in Antioch were excited. And they couldn't wait until the next Sabbath day to hear what was preached and proclaimed. And during the duration of that week, they prepared by preaching and teaching and encouraging and inviting and exhorting and helping make sure that all knew that there was going to be a great lesson the next Sabbath. And you don't want to miss it. Do we approach our worship services that way? So that our friends and associates and co-workers and neighbors, they know that there's something exciting here? And it's not because I'm the one preaching, obviously. They're far more gifted than I. But the fact that together as a congregation of people who love the Lord and who know that their sins have been forgiven, there's something special about that. And there's something exciting about that. And we look forward to those times we can gather. It really is the highlight of the week, isn't it? Our youngsters have the opportunity to be taught the precious truths of eternity. And all of us have the blessedness of being reminded of the same. That's what's exciting, or at least one of the exciting points of it. Here are some thoughts that challenge us on that regard. It's always an impressive thing to give thought to the historical framework of the New Testament, isn't it? When Paul, for instance, began to preach in Antioch, he didn't just suddenly stand in the pulpit that day and start talking about Jesus. He called their mind to the appreciation of hundreds of years of Old Testament history. And he wanted them to know that all of the things that happened during that time were to bring about Jesus. God had a purpose and a providential view in mind and He orchestrated the affairs of history to bring about one who would save your sins or your soul from sin. If that ought to have been impressive to them, ought not it be that much more impressive to us? This world has been around somewhat over 6,000 years and all of the events that have taken place have been surrounding the nature of Jesus. The Old Testament pointed to His coming. The New Testament looks back to His coming and builds everything upon it. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, we notice on that occasion that from the very foundations of the world, the characteristics of the coming of the Christ were laid. God had a plan in mind long before you and I were ever born. Randy is going to be a sinner and he needs to be saved from sin and I'm going to send my son that that might be a possibility. And you could put your name in the same sentence. God knew that every one of us was going to be born and you, every one of us was going to be a sinner. And isn't it still true? John 3, 16 is the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And thus Christ came. And the opportunity is given unto us to hear that word of truth to respond in obedience and to live in harmony with it. And that should be exciting. There should be nothing more noble and nothing higher in life than that. Beyond that, can we not say that the establishment of the church was a momentous event? Never again will anything like it take place. The Old Testament prophets had foretold it would come. Jesus even heightened one's anticipation when He said, in Matthew 4 17, behold, the time is at hand for the kingdom of the Lord. It was close, and those of the Lord's day waited for it with excitement. Do you and I look upon it with excitement? Or do we look upon it as a humdrum activity for three, maybe four hours a week? Something that, in fact, allows us to check mark that we've done our duty today. May it always mean more to us than that. In fact, in the final analysis, Ephesians 5.23 puts it in words like this. He is the Savior of the body. That body is the church, Colossians 1.18. And thus, if we're not faithful members of it, there's no hope of salvation. We need to be active in it, thankful for it, apprised of its work, and ever excited to have our part in it, using our abilities and talents along with it. These thoughts only move us in the following direction. One of the other features provided for us in the New Testament is this. In 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 13, it is there noted that prophets and angels desire to look into and enjoy what you and I experience. did not that make us special? There are angels who from heaven look down on what you and I are able to do and they long to be able to enjoy what we do. But see, they can't because they're not here upon earth, and it is not through them that the richness of the church is presented, according to Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. Doesn't that make us special? Angels do not have the privilege you and I do in that regard. Furthermore, angels, according to Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17, have no access to the plan of salvation, but you and I do. Doesn't that make us special? And doesn't that give the human family reason to be excited? And as Christians, ought we not in excitement respond? In addition to those thoughts, consider yet another. The faithful of the long ago in Hebrews 11, verses 38 to 40. As often as you and I read about the noble worthies of the Old Testament, individuals like Noah, Abraham, Sarah... Jacob, Lot, others who were in mention, our mind often turns with great admiration to men like David and Solomon. But may we never forget that Hebrews 11 verses 38 to 40 have an unforgettable message. It simply says this, They were not perfect without us. And isn't it true that David... And Samuel and Saul and all the others, they lived and died long before Jesus was ever born. They lived and died long before the church was ever established. They lived and died before there was any plan of salvation. But now you and I have the church, the plan of salvation, the death of Christ, the shedding of His blood, all of it. Ought not we be excited about that? For in that sense, we are more blessed than Abraham ever was. In that sense, more blessed than David ever was. In that sense, more blessed than Noah or any of the others. We live in the Christian era. The church can be that of which we're a part, and the plan of salvation can be known, obeyed, and loved. That should make us excited. No sporting event can offer that. No promotion at work can offer that. No excitement in the community should compare to it. Isn't it easy to see now why the Gentiles were so excited? Isn't it easy to see why they couldn't wait for the next Sabbath so they could hear what Paul had to say? Isn't it also interesting to note that the whole city nearly had come together to hear the unsearchable riches of Christ? In Ephesians 3.8, that very phrase is utilized, and perhaps it challenges us in this regard. It again says that the Gentiles were glad... Doesn't that remind us of that passage I used at the very outset of the lesson? I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. Have you and I been made glad this morning? Were we glad at the thought of being able to assemble with the saints? To assemble with those of like precious faith? In the words of 2 Peter 1 verse 1, That gladness ought to fill our heart, for it truly is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Along that line, these points, and then the lesson will be yours this morning. You'll notice at the very top of that slide, one final set of interesting points about some things that should excite us. It does beg this question. Why is it then that sometimes, in the interest of the excitement that should be ours, why are we less than excited? Why do we view the services perhaps less with intensity than we should? Why do we look upon the works of the church or even the establishment of it as something less than what the Scriptures seem to put toward it? It's easy to get caught up, isn't it, in the things that go on at work, the things that take place in the world, the nature, and we're all busy and we're hectic and there are things to do and every day is full with a to-do list that sometimes is a half mile long and more. And we understand that as we lift our eyes above that commonness and the things that are our way, may we never forget that we are Christians. That is the best thing of which we can say and that that should be something we never forget. Hebrews eleven sixteen reminds us that we are marching toward a city whose builder and maker is God. This world is not our home. We're here for a little while. And may we so live in such a way that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. In the last paragraph of the New Testament in Revelation twenty two fourteen, blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Things on the job site, things at school, It is not to say we should forget about all those things, but they must always be looked upon with proper priority. For the thing that's far more than they is one's association with God. The excitement of the gospel should be something that rings through our speech, rings through our considerations, and something that lightens our spirit every time we think of it. May the church have that kind of position in our our thinking and in our thoughts. One final thought might well be then this interesting statement of Romans 5.8. Near the beginning of the Roman letter, Paul addressed that congregation in Rome, and it was to them that he urged them to realize the beauty of faith, the opportunity that it affords. And beginning in verse number 6, he had this statement for them. It reached a, a great crescendo, a zenith, if you will, in verse 8, For there he said, Speaking about the love of God, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commendeth His love toward us. He knows you by name and He knows me by name. He knows even the very numbers of the hairs of your head, according to Matthew chapter 10. He knows you, He loves you, and He does the same to me, and He wants all to be saved. In First Timothy 2.4 we read, that our God would have all men to come into a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that beautiful? And in 2 Peter 3, 9, we read, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But as suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want you to be lost. He doesn't want me to be lost. He wants us to be saved, and He sent His Son as proof of that truth. This very morning, if you're not excited about the church, think urgently about your association with God. Maybe you need to rededicate your life today. Maybe you need to come back to that first love so again the fires of excitement can burn brightly within you. As we conclude this lesson there at the bottom, may we notice in Matthew 5:6, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Are you hungry and thirsting for truth and righteousness? If today we could be of assistance to you in rededicating your life to the Lord, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. We'd be honored to approach the Heavenly Father on your behalf. If you have never, though, become a Christian, why not today? This 12th day in February 2012, there will never be a better day than this one. For you to put on the robes of truth as you respond to the gospel call of invitation. If today we could be of assistance to one or more in the audience as you respond publicly to the truth, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing the chosen song?